Welcome to Commonplace Church. Uh, my name is Corey Costa. I'm the associate pastor here. Really glad you guys are here. As Jay said, today we'll be wrapping up chapter one and the letter of James. If, if you're just joining us, um, this is a New Testament letter written by the biological brother of Jesus uh, to Jewish Christians, particularly the tribes of Israel who had been exiled from their homeland by opposing nations and He's expanding upon the life and teachings of Jesus as the fulfillment and embodiment of the entire Old Testament, um, all pointing to him and, and how we can practice this way of Jesus and live out our faith by responding to this gift of God's grace towards us that offers us forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with him and eternal life as, as Jay was sharing. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, James chapter 1 um, verses 19 through 27. Um, and if you missed last week's teaching um, on God's faithfulness through temptation, um, definitely be sure to go back and listen, whether on the podcast, on YouTube, um, and, and catch up with that, because a lot of the passages today will really kind of tie in and connect uh, with that as well. And so as for today, um, let's take a quick look at this passage, and we will uh, go through it together. So Chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 of the letter of James says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. It's a powerful section of scripture. And so at first glance, I think a passage like this and where we want to be careful, it can trip some of us up as it can seem to be veering into this territory of behavior modification and moral performance and doing the right things. Um, and, you know, after all, um, a lot of Jesus's critiques of his day were the religious elites who were so focused on their external displays of, of um, good behavior, but really kind of had this heart posture that wasn't right before God. And so as we look at today's instructive, practical wisdom from the letter of James, just let's remember that it, it comes from the lens of a heart that is transformed by God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, not the other way around where good deeds are what we do to be saved. Um, and as I was reading this, one thing it reminded me of, uh, one day last week I grabbed the mail and we got a copy of the Mount Olive Life newspaper and I don't know if anyone in here gets the Mount Olive newspaper. You know, as a, for a small church, we are a very kind of regionally scattered church. So it, it's kind of interesting. But my hometown of Nekong made the cut. Nekong's pretty small, so I don't think Nekong has a newspaper. But 
uh, we, we, we got a spot in the Mount Olive life. So um, felt so weird reading a physical newspaper. It's just like not something I really do. But so I, I, I check it out. And so there was a Nekong resident that turned 100 last week. And I said, that's interesting. You know, they only have a population of like 3,500 people in Nekong. So I'm like, that's pretty cool. So I start reading about um, Betty Kernow, a resident of Nekong who turned 100 a couple weeks ago. And really, it was a really nice story. She, she met her husband uh, skating on Lake Muskinekong, which is right in our backyard. And uh, they got married in, in the 40s at the Methodist Church, right across the street from the lake, uh, Stanhope Methodist. And um, so she's been a, a lifelong member there ever since, since the 40s. And she's still there. And the paper went on to detail just her decades of committed service to this church, uh, serving in various positions and outreach. Uh, there were different things she was doing outside of the church too, uh, making blankets for pediatric cancer patients and providing warm clothing for those who work long-term in uh, maritime communities and, and things like that. And my favorite excerpt from, from this whole thing was Betty's answer to the question, what's a secret to a long life? To which she replied, I mind my own business. And she sounds wonderful. I, I want to be her friend. And I think I, 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 think I still have time. And, um, so you may be wondering, why are we talking about Betty Kernow? Um, you know, as we go through the letter of James, as we go through trials, struggles, temptations, the challenges of being messy people in an even messier world, or maybe vice versa, sometimes it's tempting to believe that the best we can do is try to scrape by and manage until we die or until Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And I believe that the gospel makes it clear to us that living as those who have been adopted into God's kingdom as God's children, this isn't something that happens to us hypothetically in the future that we need to just manage until but this is something that we are living into right now. Jesus himself prays that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, not that we would just manage and get by here until we get to paradise. The reality is that the Holy Spirit lives within us when we believe in Christ, and so we're therefore called to further usher God's kingdom into this world. Our response to the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, the promise of eternal life, it's to follow Jesus, to become more like him, not only in the hypothetical future, but believing that that's something that can happen in the messy here and now of everyday life. So whether we live to be 25 or 100 or beyond that, this process of God's sanctifying power at work in our hearts, it's happening right now. And we're called to be a part of that, to serve the church to be faithful, to be mindful of the people outside of the church and how we can love them, to be in it for the long haul, to find a church and commit to it. I think of Betty just decades of service that up until this article, because she happened to live to triple digits, probably not many people even knew about, but she just faithfully served. 
And while minding our own business, her, her answer, it's, it's not necessarily a surefire approach to everything in life, right? Sometimes we need to step into other people's lives and live on mission for Jesus. Uh, but, but what it does is it adds some context to today's message, this hearing and doing, um, which I think another good way of, of putting it, uh, two main things is to listen well and to follow through. There's a third in here too, which is watch your mouth, but mainly... Uh, listen well and follow through. Um, and uh, so, you know, um, it's not, this isn't a to-do list, right? This isn't homework. You know, when you get home, listen well, watch your mouth, follow through. Got it, cool. It, you know, it, it's, it's an expression, right? First of all, of God's commands in his word, as we see that James has a deep reverence for the scriptures, it's also an expression of how the process of sanctification makes itself visible in our lives. If the ongoing faith and works conversation ever gets confusing for you, and okay, I'm saved by grace, but I'm, I'm also saved by these works that kind of manifest through this faith, if, if that ever gets confusing for you like it does for me, there's a quote uh, Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission, that I find really helpful, where he says uh, that grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And so I, I find that to be a helpful reminder that we aren't earning God's favor by serving, by doing. We can't. It, it's impossible. But it would, be, it would be intellectually dishonest. It would be maybe even deceptive, as James says, uh, to suggest that hard work and great effort and service have no place in our discipleship to Jesus. So keeping that framework as we discussed today, these, these two or three ways to practically follow Jesus in hearing and doing the word. So the first one is to listen well. So again, James chapter 1 verse 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I want to sit down with James someday and work out my people-pleaser issues because his ability to speak the truth in love but without compromising, I just find it to be so powerful because he does this immediately. He says, know this. He's saying, be aware, become perceptive of this truth I'm about to share with you, right? He doesn't say, hey, here's a suggestion if you maybe want to give it a shot and if not, that's totally fine. So sorry I bothered you in the first place, right? He confidently shares knowledge. He shares the truth, but look at how he does it. He does it with love, by opening with my beloved brothers. He's saying, my family, my people. And if we, if we backtrack, how does James get to this place where he's confidently sharing truth without compromise, but he's doing it in a loving and compassionate way? Somewhere along the way, James listened well. This is evident, one, from, from his deep knowledge and application of the Old Testament in, a, in an oral culture where a lot of this wasn't even necessarily being written down yet, and two, his shift from, as we saw in previous weeks, um, James and other accounts, along with the rest of his siblings, calling Jesus crazy and out of his mind to calling him Lord. So we see that somewhere along the way, James listens well. In verses 22 through 25, um, in here, make it very clear that to follow Jesus is not only to be a hearer of the word, but what James calls a doer of the word as well. But sometimes we hear that and, and we just focus right on doing, 
But James isn't devaluing the hearer of the word at all. He's actually implying that one who does God's word, the doer, or rather does God's will, is the one who hears God's word well in the first place. So being a good listener is central to following Jesus, and it's something that Jesus himself modeled very well. All throughout the Gospels, you have countless examples of Jesus answering questions with a question. Um, And, you know, this wasn't some deflective method, right? Jesus wasn't being shy. He wasn't playing mind games. Jesus wanted to listen. Remember, Jesus is the second member of the Trinity and has all knowledge. Jesus didn't need to ask anyone any questions ever. He had the answers. But yet he asked and he listened even and sometimes especially to those opposed to him or skeptical of him, Jesus invited this. Jesus listened to the questions of Nicodemus, the Pharisee, or the Samaritan woman at the well, even his own doubting disciples. And, and he also listens attentively to us. You know, do we believe that, that, that when we take the time to pray and be honest and work through our struggles or work through the needs of that moment? Do we believe that Jesus is attentively listening to us? My favorite example is uh, of the blind man in Mark chapter 10. It's verses 46 through 52. It says, when they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, this is Jesus, and a great crowd Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So Jesus is in the midst of this huge crowd, right? It's likely chaotic and loud. And so we're told of Bartimaeus, this blind man who begins to cry out for Jesus, crying out to the point that it seems to be irking those around him who are also now shouting and telling him to be silent. So there's all these voices, all this noise, all this stimuli. Jesus also um, being aware of the people around him as his time had not come yet. There's so many different dynamics happening. Um, But yet what does he do? He stops, he listens, and he responds to Bartimaeus. And then he asks him a question. Jesus already knows Bartimaeus is blind and desires to have his sight recovered. Jesus knows that already. But he asks him the question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And again, Jesus listens. And in true hearer and doer fashion, he heals Bartimaeus of his blindness. And I love this example because I think we can often find ourselves in a similar situation. 
Many of us live day to day in an overstimulated state. We wake up to the sound of an alarm, or if you live in Nekong, it was the sound of fireworks at 7 a.m. yesterday, um, or the sound of a dog barking, or a child running around, or a baby crying, or whatever it is. Um, and we hyper speed scroll through news and memes and texts, and we scroll through our spam emails to find the important ones, and maybe we have music or a podcast going on in the background for this whole thing, and there's something, this is something I particularly struggle with, because as all of this is happening, I'll find myself not truly listening. I can't, uh, I can't tell you how many times Talia said something to me, and I heard her voice, but the words didn't make its way in. And I look up and I'm like, uh-huh. And like, she, she knows I didn't hear her. And, you know, it's so hard with so much noise and so many voices. And now try to imagine yourself in, in, a, in a similar position of Jesus, right? You're just outside of Jericho in the Jordan Valley. Same scenario except maybe include a, a smartphone or something like that or AirPods. And someone who truly needs you is trying to get your attention. But with all the voices, the noise, the stimuli, the other things on your mind whatever it may be, you don't even hear them. You don't even look up from your phone to make eye contact, to listen. And not, not only do we struggle to hear those around us, but because of this, I think we struggle to hear God's voice too. And I, I think some of us struggle with the idea of hearing from God or discerning his voice, right? Knowing if it's truly him. Um, with all the voices fighting for our attention, our inner critic rebuking us or our inner self-righteousness lifting us up or influencers and podcasters giving their opinions, you know, um, maybe our upbringings and things we remember, advice we remember getting from our parents or from peers, all these different things that are kind of just floating through our brains all the time. And it's difficult to hear God's voice. And there's so much going on just with ourselves you know, the modern Trinitarian religion. It's the uh, me, myself, and I thing where uh, we struggle deeply with carving out the time and energy to sit silently with God in his presence with his word open in front of us just to truly hear from him. I know it's something I struggle with. It's something that I think we have to get right because the rest of this passage to be doers of God's word, to be active in the kingdom building, we have to listen well. And remember, this isn't performance. This is just something we practice. James specifies really well by telling us to be quick to hear, right? This is actively listening. And when it comes to God's word, whether it's reading it directly, hearing it on a Sunday morning, something like this, a midweek podcast, a conversation over coffee with a friend, wherever we do it, we're to be quick about it. Um, you know, if, if you're in a situation where there's a, a trial or a temptation or a struggle like we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks and you, you bear it and you try to use willpower until the very last second and then you, you scramble for uh, some scripture or something to try and motivate you or encourage you or get you out of that slump, um, I, although you haven't been listening that whole time, that whole time maybe you've been listening to your own voice or you've been listening... Um, to your own thoughts of fear or anxiety or whatever it is, and then try to invite God's voice or God's word into the situation, find it's a lot harder to do. So James says we're quick to hear. 
And so how, how, do, how do we do that? Maybe for some of us that means letting God's word be the very first thing we truly hear every morning. And maybe not before the alarm or the dog or the uh, child who needs our attention, but maybe before we grab our phones, maybe before we turn on the news, maybe before we start our morning commute, maybe before our first intake of caffeine for the day. What if the first thing you did tomorrow morning was listen for God's voice? Before the hurry, before the stress, before the responsibility and the weight of the day sets in, before you let those things dictate how you're feeling, what if the very first thing you allowed to enter into your brain, into your nervous system, your limbic system, your heart, your soul, was God? I've always heard uh, Chris refer to this as stepping onto the battlefield with no armor on. You know, don't, don't wait until the trials or temptations of life are overtaking you and, you know, they're already firing at you. Armor up first thing in the morning. One more piece on this in verse 21. I love this. Uh, James refers to the implanted word. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah also speaks of God's word being written on our hearts. So I believe this can mean two things. First of all, it means that God's word takes root in us. We talked about that a few weeks back, the baptism service in Colossians, uh, being established and firm in the faith, letting it take root. Um, it's, it's, you know, take whatever you have committed to memory. The, think of the things that just come second nature to you, if it's like the Pledge of Allegiance or advice you got from a friend or lyrics from some song in the 90s, whatever it is, whatever like sticks in your brain. Uh, even when you aren't thinking about it specifically, anytime it comes up, you know it well. It's, it's kind of there waiting for you. You're well acquainted with it. Knowing God's word and being well acquainted with it, it, it allows for the same thing to take place where it's implanted in us and actually part of how we receive and respond to information. It, it becomes a part of our thought process and how we respond to the things going on in our lives. The other thing I believe that this can mean for us is not only can we learn God's word, right, and, or memorize it or, or meditate on it or study it, but that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that he can bring God's word to remembrance in us, and he can speak directly to us. And I want to be careful with that because I know some people have experienced that differently, and it's not about the experience. It's not about whether you feel you've had an experience where you've audibly heard God's voice or you were in prayer and you felt uh, a phrase come to mind or a scripture come to mind. Maybe, maybe you've never had an experience like that, and I don't think it's about a, an experience or not. It's, it's simply about um, desiring to listen well, and we, like I said, want to be careful, right? We don't want to abuse or manipulate that kind of language, that God gave us a word and it fits our agendas. We want to be sensitive to that, uh, but I don't think we should allow that to rule out the possibility of hearing from God altogether. It may be, maybe prayer isn't just a place for our requests to be made known or our fears to be made known, but maybe it's a, it's a conversation and it's a place to hear from God. And so as we follow Jesus, let's be sure to listen well. The other thing, you know, the second one, which was watch your mouth. Um, I think we'll, we'll get to that more in, in chapter three as it goes into this concept of taming the tongue or maybe nowadays more like taming our thumbs as well. Uh, but before we get to that, um, 
There's just a, a couple things, a few notes on this. As James emphasizes being quick to hear, he just as much counters with being slow to speak. And honestly, this is an extension of listening well. If you're always quick to speak, chances are you may not be giving others the opportunity to speak, and therefore you're not truly listening. It's a quick litmus test for you. This is another thing that I've, I've caught myself doing. When you're texting someone, and this is elitist of me, this is an iPhone thing. I'll come up with another analogy after this. But um, when you see a text bubble pop up while you're typing, so you know the other person is, is beginning to express themselves, you know, are you more prone to hold off on what you're saying to let them respond? Or are you just kind of bulldozing through that to get your point across? You know, it, it's the question of do we truly listen or do we treat the breaks between talking uh, to listen to our thoughts and plan the next thing we want to say, right? Or are we really listening? Uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So we want to get to this place where we're also listening well to those around us, that we put our phone away, we put whatever is going on away, and we listen, and we make eye contact, and we connect. Um, I don't know if anyone else feels weird about eye contact, but I do sometimes. I really do. I don't know if it's the digital age. I don't know what it is, but there are times, I'm totally going to put her on the spot, that Talia and I will stop what we're doing and we make eye contact. And even for more than just a few seconds, there's just this feeling of like, this is the real thing. Like, this is life. This is love. This is intimacy. This is knowing someone. And it almost makes us a little uncomfortable in the moment because it's kind of awkward, because we don't really ever all just let our guards down and be known and know someone. And there's something breaking through that and listening well and being present to somebody that's just, um, I don't know, I feel like you, you, when you can sense that, it's like this is the real thing. Like this is, this is life. This is, this is knowing people. This is being in community. This is connecting. This is listening. Um, and so we listen well to those around us. And right, not simply as a platitude to get to the next thing we want to say, but because you genuinely care about the well-being of others above your own. And again, not as moral performance, it's just a way to follow Jesus. Because Jesus did this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 talk about this, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? So this isn't, hey, just stop and do better. This is, this is yours because of who you are. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I said this earlier, Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He could have said, I don't have time for this, right? These people aren't even listening to me. They're not paying attention to me. They don't even look up from their herds. They're not paying attention. But he didn't do that. He humbled himself. He put the well-being of others above his own, even to the point of his own death on a cross. So we put others before ourselves in the same way. And like I said, I think technology has made this even harder, especially Zoom. I, I don't like Zoom. I have a really hard time on there. 
uh, it's nearly impossible to listen well because there's like a latency, so you're just all talking over each other. But I think these are important pulse checks to take on ourselves and on our hearts because love listens. And so I think a good question to ask ourselves is do we value listening quickly? And do we value speaking thoughtfully and responding thoughtfully and doing it in that order? Being slow to speak gives us the opportunity to listen intently and to respond honestly and to do both lovingly. Jesus has a warning to us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, where he says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So this, you know, watch your mouth thing, tame your tongue, it isn't simply cursing or slander, though it, though it may be those things. It's everything we say. Our words matter. Our influence matters. Our witness matters. These aren't unlimited, unrestricted concepts, right? If we die on every hill, eventually we'll lose credibility. The Great Commission calls us to make disciples and preach the good news. Because of that, the credibility of our words is crucial. And so that's why James calls us to be slow to anger in this verse as well. And, uh, you know, anger, anger is interesting, I, I think. I was talking to some people this morning about anger, actually, because I've been struggling with anger this week. Um, and anger isn't always necessarily a sin, it's an emotion. Um, pastor John Mark Comer, who's a pastor out in Portland, once said in a teaching that we can't control our emotions, but we do have influence over them. And, you know, if you always have a tendency to blow up emotionally, have outbursts, uh, the, the struggle is that eventually you, you'll lose the efficacy of any even righteous anger you may be feeling or righteous indignation. You know, if everything seems like the end of the world, nothing is. You know what I mean? And what we see all throughout Scripture is that God himself is slow to anger. It's expressed in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and, and this section of Scripture is actually the most quoted verse in the rest of the Old Testament. So if there's one thing to know about God, it's that he's faithful and he's gracious and he's slow to anger. In fact, there's really only one account, I believe, that you could point to Jesus' life and accuse of anger, and it's where he creates a whip and he drives those seeking to exploit God's people out of the temple. So there's one account of a, of a slow-to-anger God uh, with a righteous indignation, and any potential anger that Jesus had in that moment was on account of the well-being of others as opposed to himself. Jesus' ego wasn't hurt, his pride wasn't hurt, his feelings weren't hurt. He was defending his people on account of their own well-being and on account of God's glory. So our own anger, maybe it's not always a sin, right? Maybe your anger is towards injustice. And maybe that's good. Use that. James tells us in this passage, visit the orphans and the widows, stand up for the oppressed, so be a doer. If, if you have anger towards the way things are in this world, let it fuel you into, a, in, into being a doer, just remembering that we don't operate out of anger, 
right? Because that also requires mercy and forgiveness and compassion and what else Jesus teaches, which is a self-denying love of our enemies. You, can only, you can't really do that in anger. And that's why James tells us, he specifies that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we're angry on account of ourselves or things not going our way, that doesn't produce righteousness. It produces bitterness and withholding forgiveness and oftentimes acting out sinfully in other ways to release that anger or to run from it or to deal with it. And eventually it blows up. I know this one can be, a, can be hard for a lot of us. And I'll be honest, um, having this um, passage this week was hard. I think God used it to teach me a lot of things. And, and so I, I spent a lot of this week just repenting of anger in my own life. And anger I've been feeling um, in my life and, and uh, struggling with. And so I'll be honest, sometimes for me, the best I can do is keep my anger on simmer. It's to turn the heat down and wait for it to die out. I want to get to a place where I can confront it more and I can be more at peace with myself and with the other people in my life. I, I want that and I, I trust that in following Jesus that I, I can grow to that place. But in my current stage of life, sometimes the best thing I can do is just turn the heat down a little bit and ride out the storm. Um, so if anger is a challenge for you, you're not alone in that. Uh, it's a powerful emotion. And sometimes, sometimes it's even uh, prompted by things that aren't necessarily wrong. So it can be tricky to navigate. But I think this can be helpful that, that what is our anger on account of and what are we doing with it? Are we becoming bitter? Are we holding grudges and resenting people? Are we disrespecting the people around us in anger? Um, or does the anger in us produce a desire to be holy? Does it produce in us a desire to care well for people who aren't being cared well? Um, the last thing today, the last item is to follow through. This is where James instructs us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. This is the key, and it's strong language because James goes on to tell us that if we hear God's word but we don't do it or act on it, that we are deceiving ourselves. Maybe we're living a lie. Look at James' analogy here in verses 22 of 20 through 25, back in James chapter 1. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here's the point James is making. Don't get wrapped up in your own intellectual stimulation. This mirror analogy, I think, goes a little deeper than this, than this translation provides here because initially, the first few times reading it, even for me, I, I was reading it as someone who looks in a mirror and forgets what they look like immediately, suggesting that they didn't really give a good look. You know, maybe they were walking by it really quickly or they weren't really paying attention. So maybe this was like, just like a lack of care or a lack of attention kind of thing. And maybe mirrors weren't as solid back then and, 
you know, the first century uh, dispersed tribes weren't taking selfies, so it was easier to forget what you look like. I thought maybe that's what James was saying, but I don't think that's the point he's getting at here. Uh, the Greek word translated as looks intently here is katanoeo, uh, and it means much more than a quick glance. It's, it's translated a few different ways, a few different times, and it's translated to consider in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is saying, consider the lilies, consider the ravens, and how God cares for them, and how much more he'll care for you. There's this sense of looking, literally, but also looking internally, which is why James uses the analogy of a mirror, and thinking well about something, thinking deeply about something. In other places, this word is, is translated as perceive, contemplate, or even examine. So this isn't a, a quick glance in the mirror. You know, if you were to examine your face in the mirror, right, really take your time. Um, maybe you just had dinner, there's food in your teeth, right? And you, you make those observations, you take note of them, you examine those things, and you walk away from the mirror, and as James says, at once, so immediately, you completely forgot what your face looked like. Not, and not only did you forget, but you didn't clean up what was there. And all of that examining really had no lasting effect. James is making this comparison to one who hears God's word, but doesn't respond to it. And it's brilliant because James refers to God's word as a mirror. And in all of the wisdom, the historical accounts, the stories, the poems, what does God's word and the teaching of God's word ultimately do for us? It holds up a mirror, right? Where we read these accounts and ultimately what we do is we end up seeing ourselves in them. We see ourselves. We see our need for God. And ultimately we see his grace extended to us. So one who looks intently, right, with that verb, one who examines themselves in God's word, who sits through a sermon or a Bible study and even feels conviction to change, true conviction to change, but then gets in the car, drives home, and does nothing about it. Wakes up Monday morning and back to the routine. James says that person has actually deceived themselves. We're fooled. So we can study as much as we'd like. The depths of scripture have no bounds. We can be as intellectually stimulated as we please, examining ourselves in God's word or getting swept up in theological debates or whatever it is. But the thing is, if we, we get so lost in the weeds, we forget to actually get out, right? And maybe pull weeds for an elderly neighbor or something. You know, getting so consumed with the philosophy of how to love our neighbors well that we don't actually ever just go out and love our neighbors well. That's the fear. That's the warning from James is to be so swept up in examining ourselves in God's word that we never step out. And when it comes to serving in the local church, uh, particularly just over two years at church plant, and as you can see in the summers, it's, it's, it's a little sparse. Um, I, I do just want to say, as, as someone who... Um, has been on both sides, I guess you could say, is, is just don't assume someone else will do it. Um, every Sunday morning we announce different opportunities to serve here and you know, they're not just fun programs to keep you busy. There's so many things in this world that can keep you busy. There's so many um, hobbies and passions and 
music and content and content and content and streaming services. You're busy enough. We're not just giving you things to do. <laughs> um, the world has plenty of that. This church has needs. We have so many children, it's incredible. It is such a blessing. And they need teachers. We have so many students. We have middle schoolers and high schoolers who are so awesome, um, who need leaders. Our accounting team, who's working so hard, needs help continuing to protect the financial integrity of this church. Our prayer team needs more and willing, able folks to intercede on behalf of the need of this church and protect the spiritual health of this church. So please just don't assume somebody else is doing it because that's not necessarily the case. It's hard and it takes everyone. And in a, in a church plant, in a smaller church, it's a lot of work. And, and we, don't, we don't look to deceive anybody out of that. Over the last year, most of our connect groups, our small groups that meet weekly, have paused meeting or have stopped meeting altogether. There's one that is currently run by our lead pastor. And I appreciate that, but I feel like it kind of doesn't count, you know? And uh, it's a great group. It's an awesome group. But um, this church needs leaders who will open up their homes to welcome those around them in their spiritual journey together to put the well-being of others above our own. And so when we, when we hear these calls, it's just keeping our hearts open, not to overextend ourselves, not to burn ourselves out, not to be the hero. Those are all things I have to tell myself every week. But when we hear those things, to just keep our hearts open that maybe God isn't calling someone else to step out in faith or to serve or to lead. Maybe he's calling you. In 2016 was the first time I... I was welcomed into this church family. It's changed names and locations many times since then. But I, I walked into Franklin Elementary School in Sakasana in 2016. Chris remembers. And uh, I know a lot of you were there as well, some of you. And um, I'd never really been in a church before other than like Catholic church as a kid. And so I'll be honest, I was not sold by the production value or the music or the programs or all it could do for none of none of that really appealed what appealed to me were the people i was really skeptical about jesus and the implications of that on my life but i left that day saying wow these people really believe that just this this passion this love this connectivity, this unity for the sake of the gospel, that I said, I don't know if I believe any of that to be true, but I want to believe it's true because I want what they have. That is, that is incredible. And so it's, it's not about serving just for the sake of, of checking a box, but being further enveloped into this community of, of love and passion for God and for his kingdom and for his mission being accomplished in this area and being able to really be a part of that. Um, and so, you know, at a smaller church, there are so many people who are already stepping in in so many ways, so this isn't a step up, do more thing at all because I don't think that's necessary, I don't think that's helpful, and I don't even think that's necessarily biblical. But let's make sure as we hear God's word, as we're convicted by it, that we're giving it enough room in us to help us respond to it as well.
And James ends this passage with a a call to what he calls pure and undefiled religion. Nowadays, and perhaps maybe for all time, religion is a loaded term, right? Even most Christians hear it and it's kind of feel like it's kind of icky. It's like a cringeworthy kind of word because it just has a lot of baggage attached to it to the point where I think a lot of people will kind of be like, well, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual. And they kind of make this difference. Or like, it's not a religion, just come check out our church. It's not like that. Like, because that word has so many negative connotations. So what I love is that James defines it beautifully. And this is one of the only uses of the word religion in the entire Bible. There's like four or five of them and two of them are right here. And so he says... I need to say it exactly. He says, Religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And to put another way, not to oversimplify or to take away from what James is saying, but another way that religion is pure and undefiled is to love God, to love other people, and in keeping ourselves unstained, really to love ourselves too. It's love. You know, Christians often say um, they're in the world but not of it. This idea of being, living here but not being of this world. And in the same way that today's passage is to not be hearers only but be doers as well, and sometimes we only focus on the doing that we forget to hear, I think with the being in the world but not of it, we hear the not of it part but we forget to be in it. And what I mean by that is that being in the world, it's not a call to live in a bubble. When I think of this keeping yourself unstained, it doesn't mean to avoid people. It doesn't mean that we keep ourselves unstained by avoiding people that we think could do that to us, but rather continually being cleansed, not of the filth of others, but as James says in here, our own filthiness, what he calls rampant wickedness. We're cleansed of that. Read the Gospels. Jesus ate and drank with sinners, yet never sinned himself, but associated with these people to the point that he was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a sinner because of his affiliation, his close association, and his willingness to live amongst people who lived in such a way. Jesus never sinned. Sinless man. But yet, he sat in filthy places with filthy people who had filthy pasts and presents and futures. Some would go on to betray him. He knew that. So we're cleansed not by staying away from sinners. We're cleansed by God's word and by Christ's work on our behalf and by our own confession to others of our sin. So by our hearing and our doing, that's what cleanses us, by listening well, by being slow to speak, being slow to anger, following through on our repentance and on our convictions when we feel, God, I really want to change in this area, and we pursue that, and we walk in that direction. But what I love is is James' use of, of this sacrificial language here, where he's calling this religion undefiled and unstained. He's using sacrificial, like even Levitical language because it took a sacrifice to even make any of this possible for us. Because we follow a blood-stained Savior who makes us clean, who washes away our stains, who washes away our sin. And so as we follow 
as we strive to follow this, this blood-stained Savior, to follow Jesus, let's just take some time to hold up the mirror, right? Not to be afraid of it, not to avoid it, but trusting that we have already been made clean. That if we look intently at ourselves, at our lives, this kata nueo, um, then we can look intently at the cross and at the resurrection. Um, there's a, a passage in First Thessalonians that came to mind just yesterday for me, so I don't even have it in my notes here. But I thought it was really helpful because my biggest concern with a message like this is that we walk away just hearing, do better, do more, step it up. And I don't believe that's what this says. In First Thessalonians, there's this benediction, just this way of kind of closing out. And so I just want to close out in a similar way. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, it says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So this need as we follow Jesus to become better listeners, to follow through on our convictions, to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers who respond in service, in, in sacrificial love of enemy and of church. Um, it's not on us. It's not step it up, do more, do better. It's not Shia LaBeouf screaming, just do it. It's, it that's not the message. It's to rely on the God of peace, the one who himself, Paul says, will sanctify us completely. It's beautiful. Our spirit, our soul, our body, this is, this is full healing and removal of sin as we navigate life. And it may not be linear. It may not be at our pace. It may not be at our expectations. But it happens at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, he who calls you is faithful. So if you hear these things and you're like, man, I'm not I'm, I'm hearing, but I'm just not doing. Or I've been doing so much doing that I have not stopped to listen. Or I'm not doing either of these things right now. This is not a guilt and shame message. This is a reminder that God's grace is for us. He is faithful, right? So in our struggles and the things that we're not, maybe the boxes we feel we're not checking, the things that we're not crushing it in, it says he will surely do it. So this isn't about putting our foot on the gas and trying harder and waking up and working harder. It's about yielding to the work that God is doing in our lives, surrendering to him because he's the one who can make us like his son. We don't make ourselves like Jesus. That's what God is doing in our hearts and in our souls and in our bodies and in our spirits. So we yield to that and we trust him with that process that it might not look the way that we expect it to, it might not work at the pace that we expect it to, um, but that he has put people in our lives, and, and for us, that is, that is the awesome people of Commonplace Church, who can be there for us as we stumble through this together. Um, so as we respond in worship and as we pray, um, I just want to invite you to um, just let go of whatever is, is, is giving you feelings of guilt or shame and to trust that there's a God who's forgiven your sins and when, and when you repent of those sins and turn to him, you can receive that forgiveness. You can live with the God of peace who sanctifies completely, not the God of anger or the God of um, have had enough with you or the God who is tired of your screw-ups. No, this is the God of peace. So let's pray to him and respond and worship together.